you would turn with me to the book of Habakkuk, it's one of the so-called minor prophets towards the end of the Old Testament. Maybe you get the Awana song in your head to find out exactly where it is. Uh, there's only three chapters in the book of Habakkuk. Uh, what we're going to do is this week we'll look at the first two, and next week we'll look at the third chapter. And the book is divided up. It's a little different than most prophetic books. Most, mostly when you read through the prophets in the Old Testament, you'll see that they are sermons, they're words from the Lord brought to the people, or maybe there are stories about what happened to these prophets. The book of Habakkuk is unique in that it is a conversation between God and the prophet. So it starts off with a question from Habakkuk, and then God answers. And then Habakkuk asks the second question, and again, so he receives an answer. And so that's the part we'll look at this week. And then chapter 3, we'll look at next week, is a song that Habakkuk composes in response to what he's learned from God. So um, a little bit of background information, Habakkuk, as we said, is a prophet. He lived in the kingdom of Judah towards the end of the kingdom. So things were not very good at the time. People were, most people had turned away from God. Most kings were not following God. And most people were not following the law of God that was given by God to the nation of Israel. And Habakkuk is one of the few good people left in the country, and we'll see that he is really concerned about the situation in the country. And God is going to tell him what he is going to do about this situation, answer these questions. Uh, one other point to note before we start reading this, the book of Habakkuk is mo mainly written as poetry, and Hebrew poetry is slightly different from our poetry that we have in English, because what do we do to, to make two sentences go together? we rhyme, right? With the, end, the sound at the end of the sentence matches the sound similar to the sound of the next word. Now, Hebrew poetry, it's not the sounds that go together, it's the meaning of the sentences that go together. So we'll have a sentence with certain words, certain meaning, and then the next sentence is slightly different, but similar in meaning. So it may add something, it may clarify something, but it's very similar. And so they kind of rhyme with the meaning of the words rather than the sounds of the words. And that's a good thing, because if you are writing a book, the Bible, that you want translated in every language in the world, it would be very difficult for people to translate that if the poetry was rhyming by sound, because all languages sound different. But if you rhyme by meaning, if you make the meaning similar, you can translate it to every language in the world, and people will still get it. So there's some wisdom from God, I think, in how he orchestrated all of that and how we orchestrated Hebrew poetry to come together so that we can still read the translation of this poetry in Hebrew. Um, so I hope by now you've all found the book of Habakkuk. We'll start in, in chapter 1 with that first question that Habakkuk asked and the answer of God. And what God will tell Habakkuk is that he's going to deal with the evil according to his word. What we'll see in God's answer to Habakkuk's question is that he, God will show Habakkuk how he's already at word exactly according to everything he's told in the Old Testament before. But let's, let's read these questions, these how long and the why question here. Uh, let me read you the verse, first four verses. It says, The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, How long, O Lord, will I call for help? And you will not hear. I cry out to you, Violence! Yet you do not save. 
Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. So the first thing Habakkuk asks here is, how long, O Lord? And specifically, his situation is that there's all kinds of evil, all kinds of bad stuff going on around him, and God's not doing anything about it. And you'll see he kind of goes from a very, very general question, how long will I cry for help and you will not hear, to a little bit more specific. He says, I cry out violence and you do not save. So first we notice Habakkuk feels God's not listening. Maybe a familiar feeling to some of us. Then he gets a little bit more specific and he says, well, there's violence around me and you're not doing anything. You're not saving me from this violence around me. And then he asked a why question. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Why is there so much evil around me? And then he describes what's going on. He says there's destruction, there's violence, there's strife, there's contention, the law is ignored, justice is never upheld, the wicked surround the righteous, and justice comes out perverted. So basically everything's going wrong, but there are a few righteous people left. And Habakkuk clearly is one of them because he's actually asking these questions from God. So he's saying, everything around me is not as it should be. No one is following your law. There's a lot of evil, and you're not doing anything about it. Habakkuk is very clear, and he says, you're not hearing me, you're not saving, and you cause me to look on all this wickedness around me. Now, the good thing is that God then comes in and answers Habakkuk. He actually gives Habakkuk an answer. You know, often we say, we have the questions why, and we feel there aren't really any answers, but God actually comes in here and gives an answer to Habakkuk. So let's read the next couple of verses from verse 5 through verse 11. That's where God answers. He says, Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people, who march through the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers and are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. But they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. That's a clear answer to that question, right? Habakkuk asks why, and God says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Is that the question you would expect when you ask God why or how long and why is this going on? It seems a little, little strange answer. But in order for us to understand why God answers the questions this way, we need to go back to a little bit further back in history, to the book of Deuteronomy. Because the book of Deuteronomy is the, the, the covenant, the agreement that God made with his people 
back when they were about to enter the land. And in that book, God, you know, we, we have all these laws, these regulations, these stipulations, and then at the end of it, God says, now if you keep these, if you will worship and follow me, all these good things will happen to you. But if you don't keep them, if you turn away, if you worship idols, then all these cursors are going to happen to you. So I want to read, I turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and read you just a few verses from this list of curses that God gives to the nation of Israel. And it's very interesting to see that the book of Deuteronomy and the, book of the books of the law, you know, we may sometimes skip over them because of all these laws that are just kind of tedious. But what God did there is he, he told Israel, I'm, I'm your God, I'm your Lord. And he gives them all these rules just like any king that conquered another country would do to the country they had conquered. There are so many similarities between the book of Deuteronomy and these kind of agreements that they found, that the kings made between each other, that it's very certain God actually used the, the agreements between the kings at the time, basically these treaties between a, a lord, a king that had conquered, and a vassal or a subject king. So what God is saying is, I'm your lord, I have rescued you, you now owe me your allegiance. And this is the agreement between us, these are the requirements, and if you keep them, this is what I will do to you. If you don't keep them, this is what's going to happen to you. Just like a conquering king would have done to the subject nation. And so in chapter 28 is where the blessings and the curses come. And what I'm going to do is read, uh, starting verse, uh, let me read verses 36 and 37 to start with. So this is, again, God has said, if this is what's going to happen to you if you're not following my laws. It says, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you, to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. You shall become a horror, a proverb, a taunt among all the people where the Lord drives you. And then let's also look at verses 49 through 53. It says, The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand. A nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old nor show favor to the young. Moreover, it shall eat the offspring of your herd and the produce of your ground until you are destroyed, who also leaves you no grain, new wine or oil, nor the increase of your herd or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. It shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout your land. And it shall besiege you in all your towns throughout your land which the Lord your God has given you. Then you shall eat the offspring of your own body, the flesh of your own sons and of your daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you, during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you. Now, this does not sound very fun, right? But you can see kind of the similarity in the language between this, these verses here and the description of the Chaldeans that God has just given to Habakkuk. Um, if you remember, it talked about the, the nation will be like an eagle swooping down, it's directly from Deuteronomy. The fierceness of this nation, there's again the similarities there between what God has promised in a way. God has said, this is going to happen to you in Deuteronomy. And now in Habakkuk, he's saying, this is what I'm doing. And um, let me also read to you verse uh, 63 through 65. 
in Deuteronomy 20. It says, It shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you, and you will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you or your fathers have not known. Among those nations you shall find no rest, and there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing of eyes, and despair of soul. So now that we have a little bit of the background from Deuteronomy, we may be able to better understand what God is actually telling Habakkuk here in, in, in Habakkuk chapter 1. So God said, you're asking these questions, Habakkuk, here's my response. I am already at work in addressing the evils around you. The way I am at work is by raising up these Chaldeans, which are not a foundation to be dealing with. But we see that that is exactly what God had said would happen to to his people back in Deuteronomy when they made this agreement, when they were about to enter the land, and God said, you know, if you follow this, things will, go, things will be well. If you don't follow them, this is what will happen. And kind of the final consequence is for a nation from afar, a violent nation, to come in and take God's people out of their land into exile. And we, living many years later, know that is exactly what happened. At the time, Habakkuk did not realize it, but God is saying, hey, Habakkuk, there is all this evil I know, I am aware, I am working things out by bringing the Chaldeans to come and be God's instrument of punishment on his nation. So God is really answering Habakkuk's question of why God is not addressing the evil by saying, hey, I promised this a long time ago, this is what's going to happen. Now, the, the one thing to notice here at the very end, though, is because we can say, okay, so God is using these Chaldeans. How, how does it work? How, how does a God, like our God, do this kind of thing using this evil nation? We'll look at that a little bit more because that's going to end up being Habakkuk's question, too. But God here in verse 11 at the end, so he's describing the Chaldeans as a fierce nation, a violent nation. They're basically this nation that was foretold back in Deuteronomy. And then he says, but they will be held guilty, they who strengthens their God. So even though God is using them, it doesn't mean that God is condoning their violence. So what does this first question and answer mean for us? Well, it's easy to kind of jump to our, at our time and say, well, you know, God's saying that he's using evil nations to judge other nations, and, and that's just what God does. But we can't really make that jump that easily. You know, when, when, when things like 9-11 happen, people may turn to these passages and say, oh, you know, evil nations are used by God to punish other nations. But we have to remember that this was as a result and a consequence of the nation of Israel breaking that specific agreement they had with God. And so for us to just take this and bring it into our time, we have to remember that you know, we are not in the same situation. And this is where 
you know, applying stuff to our life. We have to really think through what is the situation, how is, God, how is God at work. So the nation of Israel had this specific agreement with God, and God said, if you don't listen, if you listen, this is what will happen. If you don't listen, this is what will happen. And God did that. Now, we are under a new covenant where God has not made any specific agreements with any other nation than the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And so when we think about applying this, we need to think about how is God continued revelation in the Bible told us about how he deals with evil. Now, God still controls the affairs of the nations. There's no doubt about that. But when we think about the, the age we are in, God deals primarily with us as a church and us as individuals. So the principle here is that God deals with evil according to what he has said in his word. That's how he was going to deal with Israel's evil. And the same thing is true about us. God is going to deal with evil in this world according to how he, what he has promised in his word. We may think that he is taking too long. We may think that what's happening to us is God's not listening to us. But God's answer is, I am dealing with evil according to my word. And what we see is that God says all evil will be judged. There's no question about that. All evil, all unrighteousness, everything bad that's happening in this world is going to face judgment. And the New Testament focuses on individuals and the evil being judged for our own sins. So when we, when we say, you know, all this bad stuff is happening... What God is reminding us is, I am going to deal with it. Everyone, every sin is going to face its, its judgment at the final judgment. Now, we know that our sins will be forgiven because Jesus took the punishment already. But any sins that are committed that Jesus... You know, people that don't believe, people that are not following Jesus, those sins will also be dealt with. Not because they're put on Jesus, but because people will have to face that punishment for their own sin. And so God is saying to Habakkuk, I'm going to punish, I'm going to deal with evil according to what I've said in my word all along. And, the same thing, and that's the same thing he's saying to us. I am going to deal with all this evil around us now we, may, we may say, God, you know, you really are taking too long. I really don't understand why. But the first part of the book of Habakkuk tells us God is going to deal with all evil. And he is doing it according to his word. And he is already at work. But then the question that Habakkuk has is, is not really answered. He doesn't feel like God's really given him the answer he wants. So he's asking another question. In fact, the, the, the first answer that God gives him is not satisfying him at all. He does not understand it, and he doesn't really agree with it. And again, that may not be an unfamiliar emotion. We may not always understand or agree with what God is doing. But let's, let's read this next question here. It's the rest of chapter 1. So Habakkuk's next question starts in verse 12. He says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. 
Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, and gather them together in the fishing net. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net, because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? So what's Habakkuk asking here? Well, he's saying that, okay, God, in, the, in verse 12, he says, okay, I understand you have appointed these Chaldeans to come in and be your instrument to judge us. But I don't understand how that's possible, because in verse 13, he says, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? So his question is, how can it be that a nation that is more evil than we are is used by God and prospered by God to judge our nation? We at least have, have few righteous people left. If you remember back in the very beginning, Habakkuk said, you know, the righteous are surrounded by the wicked. So at least there's a few righteous people here. The Chaldeans doesn't sound like there's any righteous people there. They are just out there bent on violence, destruction, and God is allowing them to conquer one nation after another. And Habakkuk uses a, a picture here. The Chaldeans are like the fishermen with the net, and all the other nations in the Middle East are like the fish. The Chaldeans come in, conquer, drag them up in their net. And then he uses this picture to even go further. And he said, so these Chaldeans, they worship their net. They worship their own strength, their own might. They're not following God. How can they be allowed to prosper, be successful, get so wealthy, and be used by God as an instrument for judgment? So it sounds like Habakkuk is actually getting more kind of confused and has a harder time understanding. At first, he had a hard time because God wasn't doing anything about the evil. Now God has said, I'm doing something about it. I've been in the process of doing something for a long time, and it's going to happen in your lifetime. And now Habakkuk is saying, well, okay, this is what you're doing, but it doesn't make any sense to me. You're a good God, you're pure, you're holy, and you're letting an evil nation prosper. It doesn't make sense in Habakkuk's mind. How can you use the bad guys to punish the good guys? It's kind of how this picture is now coming up in, in Habakkuk's mind. These Chaldeans, these are... We've, we've had the description from God, how they're violent, how they roam through the earth conquering, and now Habakkuk. They would be like the, the bad guys, the evil army in any sort of action movie or any kind of movie. They would be the bad guys that just come in, conquer, just to be violent. There's no redeeming quality about these Chaldeans anywhere in their description here, Habakkuk. And God comes in and answers Habakkuk again. He answers his second concern as well. And what he's going to tell Habakkuk is not, oh, right, Habakkuk, you're right, I'm holy, I can't use these people. It's not, not the kind of direction God's going to go here. But he's going to tell Habakkuk, you know, some things you may not understand, but you've got to trust me to work things out. 
that's where the answer from God's going to go. And um, if you want to turn back to Habakkuk here, we're going to read the second chapter. That's, that's God, God's answer here. It starts with Habakkuk speaking still. He says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. So it's interesting, Habakkuk is expecting to be reproved by God here. But he's saying, I'm going to be standing here, I'm going to be ready for God's answer because I know God will make things clearer to me. It says, Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, for the one who reads it may, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come, it will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man, so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Shoal, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. Will not all of these take up a taunt song against him, even mockery and insinuations against him, and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his. For how long? And makes himself rich with loans. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them. Because you have looted many nations, all the remainder of the peoples will loot you. Because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all its inhabitants. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples, so you are sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall, and the rafter will answer it from the framework. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed, and founds a town with violence. It is not an is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk, so as to look on their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them, because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all its inhabitants. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it, or an image a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake, to a mute stone, Arise, and that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. That's a, a longer answer here, but there's, there's two parts to it. The first part is a charge to Habakkuk and the righteous, and then the second part is what's called a woe oracle. The word woe in the Bible usually means something bad's going to happen. You, if you're, you may remember Jesus using it when he talks about the Pharisees, he says, woe to you because of this and this and this. So Habakkuk here, and he's not the only prophet using this. Quite often it's used for Israel itself since they were about to have bad stuff happen to them. But here Habakkuk, or God rather, is using it to show that 
the Chaldeans are also going to be in trouble. But let's first look at the charge that God gives to Habakkuk and the righteous in the first verses here. So verses 2 and 3, God said, what I'm about to tell you is most certainly going to pass. You may feel like it's not, but it is. And then verse 4 is a charge. It says, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. So these Chaldeans, these unrighteous people, something's wrong with their soul. But the righteous will live by his faith. And there's a charge for Habakkuk and the, ra- the few righteous people left in Judah. And God is saying, you will live by your faith. Now, if you have, some, some translation will have a footnote there and say, or faithfulness. That word used there, the Hebrew word, actually is usually translated faithfulness or steadfastness or firmness. Uh, but here it's translated faith, and this verse may sound very familiar to you. It is used by Paul several times when he talks about how we are saved by grace through faith. Uh, if you turn to, uh, to Rome, or actually let me just read this to you. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 are kind of the summary verses from Paul to summarize his whole message in the book of Romans. So if you ever feel like the book is kind of long, where can I get the summary? This is the summary. Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So Paul quotes Habakkuk, and he does the same thing in Galatians. Uh, In Hebrews it's quoted as well. So this is a foundational verse to understand this whole concept of of living, being saved by faith. And if you look in Romans, this, the, the, you, you may find the same kind of footnote. The word translated faith can also be translated faithfulness. In the New Testament, it's, it's usually translated faith, but again, the, the word has those kind of two meanings to it. And for a while, I thought, well, how inconvenient that one word has meanings that seem to be opposites. You know, we often say, well, there's faith and there's works, there's faith and, and being faithful, and those are two opposites that... You know, some people think the Jews thought they were saved by works. We now know we're saved by faith. But that's not really how language works. There's not usually words that mean two completely opposite things. And if you think about it a little bit more, faith and faithfulness are not actually opposites. Rather, we we should probably see them more as two sides of the same coin, two things that are connected together. And, and maybe the big question is, well, what, what is faith? How do we define faith? Because if we think of faith as just mentally accepting and agreeing with certain ideas, well then, yes, we may think, oh, that's the opposite of, of anything that we do. But the biblical definition of faith is not mentally accepting and agreeing with certain ideas. And I think one of the best definitions of faith that that I've come across that this seems pretty simple but captures this idea is faith is active trust. So another word for faith may be trust, but specifically it's active trust. And to illustrate that, um, imagine that that I have a chair sitting here next to me. And I'm standing here and I say, oh, well, I definitely trust this chair is going to hold me. Right? I'm, I'm mentally agreeing that this chair is probably strong enough that if I sit on it, I'm going to not fall. 
But if I never sit down in that chair, if I keep standing here looking at the chair saying, oh yeah, I agree that chair will hold me. If I never sit down on it, then I've not acted on this, this, mental, this mental thing that I agreed with saying, oh yeah, I agree that the chair will hold me, but I never act on that. And so when we talk about faith, that acting part is, comes in as well. So faith is not just mentally agreeing and accepting certain ideas. It also involves acting on these ideas that we are accepting. Um, you may remember when Chris was preaching on the book of James and that very famous passage, uh, you believe that the Lord is one? Good. Good for you. Even the demons agree with that. And they shudder. So James says the same thing. Just agreeing with the fact that Jesus is God is not going to do you any good. If you remember how, how James says, you know, faith without works is dead. So what he's saying is we're saved by faith alone. So when, when it comes to salvation itself, no one will disagree. It's, it's faith. It's accepting Jesus. It's believing that, that saves. But the faith that saves is not alone. So a saving faith is more than just that agreeing and accepting the idea, certain truths. Um, I've been reading a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called The Cost of Discipleship, and he makes this point very clearly. He talks about cheap grace and costly grace. So cheap grace is accepting, agreeing that we're saved by grace, but if it doesn't go beyond just accepting that truth, then what it does is it leads to justification of sin without justifying the sinner. So what it does, it, it gives us this mistaken belief that, oh, I'm saved by grace, Jesus died for my sin, rose again, so whatever I do, I can't really help it, I'm a sinner anyway, but he's forgiven me anyway, so it doesn't really matter what I do. That's what he calls cheap grace. It's the grace that Anyone can just kind of believe in and just keep living the way they want to live because they just say, oh, you know, I'm forgiven anyway, so it doesn't really matter what I do. Jesus has died for my sins. The opposite of that is costly grace, which is the kind of grace that obviously believes the kind of things, but that also follows Jesus as a disciple. Now, when you look at the Gospels, Jesus always called people to follow him. Now, now that we're going through the Gospel of Mark, it's a perfect illustration. He called Peter, the other disciples. He called um, Levi from his tax booth, and he said, follow me. Now, that follow me is part of, of Jesus' call to all of us. So when we talk about, yes, we believe in the Gospel, we're saved by believing, that follow me part is not separate. It's not that, oh, first we believe in Jesus and then some are kind of called to follow him. That would be cheap grace, saying, oh, we're, we're here, we're just kind of believing in Jesus, we're all happy, we can still do whatever we want. That's that maybe faith without that active part. We say, oh, yes, we trust the chair, we'll hold us, but we never actually go to the chair and sit down. So we say, yeah, we, we trust that Jesus can save us, but we never put our lives throw our lives on Jesus as the only thing that will save us from our sins. 
And so all this to say that faith and faithfulness are not two different things. They are two sides of the same coin. When we have saving faith, it will always also involve faithfulness, doing, action, a changed life. Just like James said, you know, faith without, without works is dead. It's not a faith that can save you. So God is asking Habakkuk, He's saying, you know, you gotta live, you gotta, you gotta trust me here, and not just say, oh yeah, God's gonna work this out. You know, we often hear people say, oh, it will work out somehow. God is saying, you gotta, gotta trust me, remain faithful to me, not just kind of just surrender to the circumstances and say, well, God's in charge anyway. What God's calling Habakkuk and his righteous people to do is say. You've got to rely on God to work it all out. Know that he is working. And be part of, of you know, understand it's not just mentally accepting that God is working, but staying faithful to God while he's working out these maybe difficult situations we may not understand. And then God gives these woe oracles, and basically the, the summary there is Chaldeans are bad people, they're going to be judged as well for some of these very things that God said they will do to Israel. So the first, what happens, God gives three oracles, and then he puts in a little kind of summary reminder to Habakkuk, hey, this is why everything is happening. And then he puts in two more of these woes, and then he gives another kind of summary statement. So the first three are Basically, he's saying the Babylonians are going to be in trouble because of their violence and their conquering all these other nations, taking out their, their riches, and God actually pictured it as the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, those are the, it's the same nation, two different names, will come in, will take these riches, and it's really more like loans. So all these nations that they conquered are their creditors, and they're going to come back and take back what they have loaned to the Chaldeans in the first place. It's kind of painting this picture of, you know, you can go out and conquer these nations, but in the end it's going to come back to you and you'll be judged for it as well. But the, the powerful part of it is, so he says, woe in verse, um, verse 6, again in verse 9, uh, for getting evil gain, again in verse 12, because of the bloodshed and the violence. So all these things the Babylonians will be judged for. Then in verse 14, actually let me start in verse, verse 13. He says, Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that people toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? So he's saying, it's from God that the nations try their best to gain riches and everything, but in the end they'll lose it all. It's not going to be any benefit. And he says that's because God has made it such. Because... The reason being, verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Now we know from other passages, like Isaiah, it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the earth is filled with his glory. So God's glory is everywhere, but here specifically, God says the goal of all of this is that the knowledge of my glory will be all over the earth. And so God wants everyone to know his glory. 
and he is at work doing all these things, these things that Habakkuk maybe understands, these things he maybe doesn't understand, these things he may agree with or may not agree with. And God's saying, I'm doing all this because I want everyone to know my glory. Now, if I said that, we'd be pretty selfish, huh? I said, if I would say, you know, I'm doing everything in my life so that everyone may know my glory and just you know, talk about how great I am, all that kind of thing, that would not be a very good thing for me to say. But God, it's different. And God, everything he does is ultimately motivated by his own glory. Because he is the greatest one in the universe, and he knows he is the greatest one in the universe. And so he wants everyone else to know that he is the greatest one in the universe. Everyone on earth. And so he's saying, even these Chaldeans, I want them to know my glory, and if it comes through their, their destruction, then, then so be it. Then he gives two more of these woe oracles. Uh, verse 12, it says, Woe to him who built the city with bloodshed. So we again look at that violence. Oh, sorry, we already looked at verse 12. Verse 15, it says, Woe to you who make your neighbor drink and look on their nakedness. So this is about the, the shame that they bring on other nations. And then the last one is in verse 19. It says, Woe to him who, pay, who says to a piece of wood, Awake, to a stone, Arise. And he's talking there about idols. So the Babylonians were idol worshippers. They had their own gods. They're made of, of wood and stone. And God is saying, you know, these, these are mute. They, they can't teach you anything. They're not worth trusting in. And then he, he does this beautiful thing where he says, so, so you're, you're trusting in these idols that are silent. And guess what? You are also going to be silent before me. If you look at verse 20, it says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. So God says, first thing that I'm doing here, big, big picture, first thing is I'm doing so that everyone may know my glory. Second is, so that everyone will be silent before me. Now, we often use this verse, be still and know that I am God, and we think, oh, it's such a comforting verse, we can just be still and let God be God. But usually when God calls for silence, and that verse too in its context, it's in the context of judgment. So it's in the context of people being before God, and God says, you're in trouble, and we really have nothing to say. So be still and know that I am God. You know, that whole idea of trusting God is good. Um, but usually when, especially in the Old Testament, that, that whole stillness before God concept comes in, it's because people are in trouble before God. And it's like, you know, if you've done something wrong, someone is confronting you and you just have nothing. You're like, why did you do this? Yeah, got, got nothing. I'm, you know you're in trouble, you know you're in the wrong. And that's what's going to happen before God. Everyone who's going to be before God in the day of judgment is going to be silent. Once we see God in his holiness, his righteousness, there's no excuses. There's no excuse for us ever not having worshipped God, ever having done anything for our own glory instead of God's glory. There's no defense. There's no excuse, as Paul says in Romans 8 and Romans 1. Everyone will be without excuse because everyone knows 
God is the creator and deserves all worship. And everyone has turned aside, whether it's to physical idols, whether it's to ourselves as an idol, to other people as idols, to money, whatever it is. We've turned aside, and God says, here, I'm going to work everything out, and on that day, you're going to find out that you're going to be silent. Now, the good thing is, again, those of us who know Jesus, we will have a very different experience. Because we know that, yes, we have rejected God many times and lived for our own glory or the glory of something or someone else. But that's forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross. And so when we stand before God, we won't have our sins held against us. And we won't be standing there without excuse saying, yes, I deserve to be punished. Go ahead. We will stand there and then rejoice because of the salvation in Jesus and praise him for what he has done. I mean, we praise him for what he has done now, but once we've realized the full extent of our sin against the holy God, how much more will we praise him then when we realize just how much he has forgiven us? You know, we can get glimpses of it now, but once we see God and see the full extent of our sin against him, how much more will we praise Jesus for what he did for us? So we will not be silent. We will be singing his praises. But for those who are not there, who have not believed in Jesus, they will be silent before God. There will be nothing to say, no excuse. No, oh, I think I was good enough. No, oh, I didn't think I was good enough to be with you. None of that. And so God tells Habakkuk, first of all, Habakkuk, you've got to trust in me. I'm, I'm doing the right thing here. You may not think this matches with who you think I am, but I'm really doing the right thing here. Because everything I'm doing here is for my own glory and so that everyone will be silent when I judge. God, through this book, through what he's telling the prophet Habakkuk, is telling us that we need to trust him to work things out and remain faithful. Not the, oh, I, I know God is saying he will work things out, but the, yes, God is working things out, and I'm going to rely on you because you're the only one who can do this. Even when things may not go the way we think they should go, we, we think God should be doing them. And what we'll see in next week's chapter is that Habakkuk responds to God's call. But that's for next week. So what, what, what can we learn for our lives from these first two chapters? What does it mean for us? Since we're not in the Old Testament part of Israel, it's not, the call is not to remain faithful to the laws and stand with Habakkuk while the Chaldeans come in and destroy everything else. But I think there's a couple of things here that are important for us to realize. One is... And this is something that comes out all, all through the Bible, is that God obviously knows what he is doing and that what he is doing is always for the best. And this is probably where, where Romans 8.28 will come to mind. Um, most of you probably, probably know what the verse says, but let me just read it to you anyway. It says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God 
to those who are called according to his purpose. And as Chris said, we had five sessions on just this verse over the last week. And I think the thing, one of the things that stood out to me, especially as it relates to this message that God gives Habakkuk, is that that word know, that we know, is not a word that implies something we kind of learn over time, something that involves studying, something that involves growing, and, and we will later look back and say, oh yeah, now I understand, now I know. It's of all, the, of all the words for knowing used in the New Testament, it's the one that's most about God says it is so, so, and that means it is so. We may never know how everything works out for good, but God says we know, and so we know. So it, it's the same thing with Habakkuk. God says you've got to live by, you've got you to trust, got to be faithful by believing that I'm doing the right thing. And the same thing is what, what we're given here in Romans 8. We know because God tells us it is so. We don't necessarily know because we experience it. We will never understand how everything is working out for good. Um, and you know, the good here specifically, if you read the next verse in context, is that we are being made into the image of Jesus for his glory. So again... God says, you know, I'm doing all this for my glory, and it's the same for us. God says, everything will work out for good. You can trust me on that. You can take my word for it, because the good is you being more like Christ for his glory. Um, and another thing in Romans that this may remind us of is in Romans chapter 12, when Paul talks about how we personally should deal with evil around us, or those who have sinned against us. Um, let me read chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. Paul writes, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will... Heap burning coals on his head. Do not, become, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So again, God is, is asking us to stand on his promise that he is going to deal with all evil. It's not our responsibility to fix things. We, we need to, as much as it is our, if possible, live at peace with people and do what is right. But we must not take our own revenge because God says there will be a day of judgment and in that day, everything will be taken care of. And you may think, well, the person who sinned against me, this person that's doing all this evil, what if they believe in Jesus and then are forgiven? That doesn't seem right. I want them to be punished for their sins. Well, just imagine that day when you're standing before God. We're going to have the mind of God. Right? So we're going to rejoice with both sides. We're going to rejoice at the forgiveness of sins because it gives glory to Jesus and his sacrifice. So whoever it is and whatever they may have done to you, if they are forgiven by Jesus, if they are covered by the blood of Jesus, we're going to rejoice that they are forgiven. Not because of them, but because of Jesus. And the other side of the coin is that we are also going to rejoice 
when God sends people to hell for eternal punishment. And that's why God puts here, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, because all sin must be judged. And when, once we are there with God and we think like God, we understand that all sin must be judged. And if we think like Jesus, we will understand how disgraceful this sin is to God and that it must be punished. Now, sometimes people ask, and this is a hard topic, and I don't want to take anything away from the, the difficulty on this topic, but maybe this understanding will help. You know, sometimes people ask, well, how can I rejoice in heaven when I know that there's people in hell? When I know that you know, maybe a loved one was there, or you know, there's, there's all kinds of situations where, where people may not be there in heaven. And I think the, yeah, it's not, it's not easy, but I think the way that we understand it is, you know, right now we tell people about Jesus because we want them to not face that punishment. But when that day comes and there's no more choice, we're going to be on God's side. We're, gonna, we're not going to be sitting here saying, hey God, we really don't think you should send people to hell because you're a loving God. Just like Habakkuk said, you know, you're a loving God. You can't use these Chaldeans. That's not, that's not who you are. That's not how you work. So we, we will be on God's side, on God's team. We will think like God thinks, and we will understand like what, what sin and punishment and wrath, all these concepts will make more sense to us. And so when God puts people to hell in eternal punishment, we will understand that that is for his glory as well. And what God is asking us is to, to, to trust him that, that that is the right thing as well. Again, it may not be easy to understand, just like some things were not easy to understand for Habakkuk. But once we think like God, we will understand that sin deserves punishment and that it has to be done and that whether people are forgiven and we rejoice and glorify Jesus, or if people are not forgiven and they will have to face their own punishment, that those things are for God's glory as well. And that's why we will rejoice, because in the end, says God said, it's all for his glory and for, for the knowledge of that glory among all of us. Let me end with these, these questions. Now, I don't know, as when we talked about the beginning, the why question, the how long question, I don't know if anything specific came into your mind, or maybe just a general situation of this world, or this country, or your own personal situation, because we all have times when we ask why, when we ask how long. And those are legitimate questions. But I hope that through, through looking at the book of Habakkuk, we will see that God... God's not silent. God is always at work for his own glory. And he's asking us to trust. So maybe if you have a specific situation, see how, how God is at work and, and more so what he has promised in his word. Because he has promised that he is at work. And he has promised that he is working for good. And he has promised that the ultimate good is his own glory. And so he, he has spoken answers into your situation. Maybe not specifically, but in general, he has said, this is what I'm doing in this world.
And then ask the question, well, how can I respond to that in active trust? So not just, uh, yeah, yeah, I know, God is at work, but I don't really like it. But an active trust saying, yes, God, I know you're at work for your own glory, and the only thing I can do is to, to be faithful, to, to fall on you, and to be with you and your team. So that's the call here from Habakkuk chapter 1 and 2. Next week, like I said, we'll look at chapter 3, and there we will see how Habakkuk himself responded to God's calls and challenge to him. Um, but for now, let me, let me close in prayer as we meditate on these things. Father, we thank you so much that you are the creator, the redeemer, the God who deserves all glory. We thank you for your word and every, every word you've put in there for the book of Habakkuk and his life and, and what he wrote here. We thank you for what you teach us. And even though we don't always understand or we, we, you may be doing things that don't fit our picture of you, Father, help us to, to live that life of that faith, faithfulness where we trust you based on your word and where we live according to what you ask us to do. Father, I pray if there's any specific situations that have come to mind, any specific why questions or how long questions, Father, that you would use your word and, and use us as a church to help and comfort and, uh, and lead to more understanding of who you are and how you are at work. Thank you so much that we can trust you not because we see with our eyes what you're doing necessarily, but because you have said in your word that we can and that you are working, and that work that you do is for, for good, for your glory. Amen.